Please rise for the reading of Scripture from Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Hear now the word of God. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. And this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Many Christians of all stripes, including ourselves, are subject to the possibility of journeying through life with a low sense of spiritual vitality. Our days are largely consumed with worldly pursuits. For some, the spiritual disciplines can become a kind of one-a-day fast food item, if they are present at all. What we call real life for some is not life in the spirit, but life in the flesh, understood in terms of how the Apostle Paul employs these terms. Because of cultural pressures and lack of discipline, we are in danger of constantly reaching here and there, doing this and that, and fitting in Christian activity largely to meet our social needs. We may close the night in prayer as a sort of spiritual glaze over our real interests, but there is often no manifest heart hunger for God in us. As Americans, we have been conditioned to love the big, the capital B. Whatever our income, we love the notion of big sales, big salaries, Big vacations, big accomplishments, and big portfolios. We live in or hope for homes that feature double-height entryways, chef's kitchens, oversized garages, master suites, and home theaters where on our big screens we can cheer on the biggest winners or losers. Sports games, of talent competitions, of body fat, whatever. The Mega Millions jackpot captures the imagination of Americans and their pocketbooks, while three-day weekends help some live large, they say, or maybe cope with an otherwise despairing work situation. Our appetites are robust. We love the big. But as Christians, in the midst of this cultural celebration and passion for size, Our appetite for God can seem quite paltry. While we may energetically desire a new car, professional success, or home remodeling projects, do we at the same time yearn for God 
with similar zest? While we may steadily save for retirement or vacation, do we seek God with the same kind of regularity, intensity, and focus? Do we hunger for God so deeply that our stomachs growl with pain? Do we love God with the kind of spontaneous enthusiasm that we might bring to one of our other loves? Our gusto for God can be remarkably small, particularly when contrasted with the joy and delight in God that we discover in the Hebrew Psalter, like the one before us today in Psalm 63. In this psalm, David is not simply interested in or merely respectful of God. Rather, the psalmist craves God as a coffee drinker craves the first morning cup. In fact, dire thirst symbolizes his need. We read about that in verse 1. And in verse 5, hunger is the need. The longing for God is so intense that it is experienced physically. With this profound longing, Psalm 63 exudes utter and raptured joy. Like a young child exhilarated at riding his first bicycle down a steep hill, the psalmist here delights in God's intimate presence. Because your steadfast love is better than life, he says, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. You have been my help. I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Throughout this psalm, the desire for God and his steadfast love, his loving kindness, the Hebrew word here is chesed, uh, our words, our English words don't quite get there. Loving kindness, steadfast love. We get close. This is, his, this is God's covenant love for his people. When we consider the final stanza in verses 9 through 11, this gusto for God is even more breathtaking when it is revealed not only as a naively flippant uh, calling out for God, but as a sustained and profound joy that endures even during vital threat and danger. Despite the real enemies, opposition, and pain described in these final verses of the psalm, David is lost in wonder, love, and praise as he imagines being in the presence of God in the sanctuary. So as we reflect on this psalm today, uh, I want us all to consider how our attitudes And our practices measure up to the virtues exhibited here. And so as we do, may the Spirit challenge and encourage us along the pilgrim path to Mount Zion that we talked about last week in the sermon from Psalm 121. Tradition ascribes authorship to David and the internal evidence of the psalm as we read through, we see its military images and setting. We see the deep devotional power, the hunger for worship, and its reference to the king All of this is entirely consistent with that tradition. The thought of the psalm moves from a longing for God in the first couple of verses verses, to a commitment to worship him because of that in verses 3 through 5, and then a meditation on God's care in verses 5 through 8, and then finally ending with a confidence in the victory of God over the enemies. We may imagine David in the wilderness of Judah, It is night. He stands at his tent door. The light of the moon and stars fall on a sandy waste, stretching into the dimness and mystery of the land. He is lonely, sad, and perhaps frightened. 
the emptiness of all around, the quiet, and the memory of better times breed a great longing in his soul. It is not as if it were something new and strange. Rather, it is the revival of the deepest and strongest cravings of his heart. That as he muses, gather force and intensity, and he must express them. And it's David. He's the poet king. Perhaps he took up his harp and began to strum and sing, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. As David calls out in prayer to God, he also confesses his faith. This God is his God. He lives in a personal relationship with him, a covenant relationship that is the priority of his life. As he continues, early will I seek you, David puts his whole self into his spiritual search. The Hebrew verb here means to seek with longing. Early will I seek you with longing. And it implies a passionate desire for God. He continues his thought, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you. This is no disembodied spirituality. The passion of his being is for God, and the verbs denote the elemental quest, the fundamental, primitive desire that he is exhibiting in this song. We see something similar in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. David's search is also an early search suggesting that this is a morning prayer. It is quite fitting then that the ancient church had the practice of beginning the singing of the psalms at each Sunday service with this very psalm. They called it the morning hymn. Early will I seek you. David's thirst for God is set in the context of a dry land where there is no water. He may well be be in the wilderness and desert regions of some military campaign. But the real wilderness or desert is in his heart. This is even more likely in light of the contrast we see in verse 2. Consider for a moment how often God speaks to people in the wilderness. It was there that Moses and Israel received most of the Pentateuch before entering the promised land, the first five books of the scriptures. It was in the wilderness that the word of God came to both Elijah and And John the Baptist, even our Lord Jesus himself, filled with the Holy Spirit, was driven out into the wilderness, wilderness, we read in Mark 1. The spiritual geography of wilderness strips us of our defenses and it reveals our vulnerabilities. It quiets us before God. Now we are ready to hear him and to do battle, not with some external evil, but to do battle with our own hearts. With ourselves. Next, David remembers where his spiritual thirst has been quenched in the past. It is in the sanctuary, the holy place, the tabernacle, or the temple. The word looked for looked for here in this verse two sometimes has the sense of beholding the presence of God in a sort of theophany or in a vision. 
This meaning is especially possible here because in seeing God, David sees his power and his glory. Perhaps he's having some kind of theophany or a vision. It is clear that God manifested himself in the tabernacle and the temple in a visual, physical presence. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle, it says, The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34 and 35. So when we thirst for God, we naturally look back and we recall the times when we had the truest and fullest enjoyment of his presence. We think of the sanctuary. It was not the outward glory. It was not the splendid ritual of the service. It was not the excitement of the great congregation even. But it was the vision of God that then brought peace and joy to the soul. That's what we remember. And that is what is craved for again. More life and to the fuller. To see your power and glory, says David. There are often circumstances which intensify and strengthen our longings. When we come to know God, not only as God, but as our God and our Redeemer, we feel that it is a very necessity of our being, that it is our life to see Him and to serve Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to rejoice in Him as all our salvation and all our desire. David continues his song. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. David's worship is rooted in, is based on, is grounded in the chesed of God, God's covenant love, his loving kindness which is shown to be here a greater good for David than life itself. That's the, that's the value of this love that God has for him. This loving kindness is God's grace to David, his covenant love which he has placed on him, which finds David and holds him unconditionally. This Hebrew word is often uh, translated as mercy. His, his love is a mercy toward us. And David is remembering and reckoning with this reality once again and afresh. To be loved by God in this way is for David better than life. Or to put it another way, it is to begin to live again for him. Is that what it is for you? Is that what it is for me? Is it our very life? The covenant love of God? Here David responds to God's love. My lips shall praise you because of this. I will bless you while I live. To bless here means to show appreciation, gratitude, or goodwill toward, which promotes respect and honor to the one who's being blessed. Moreover, David will lift his hands to the name of God and praise him. We see this same gesture in in places all over the Psalms, but Psalm 28, for example, Uh, verses 1 and 2, says, To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me. 
Lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Calling upon God's name in faith like this releases his power and his presence. It's exactly what David is doing in this song. The result of this worship is that David's soul, his nephesh, his entire self, is now fully satisfied or fully fed as with marrow and fatness. By law, no fat was to be eaten because it was the Lord's portion. Leviticus 3. Here, as a result of his worship, and his directed desire at the appropriate end, God gives his own food, his portion, to David, and David is filled by it. Again, he responds in praise with joyful lips, or literally, lips of a ringing cry. William Forsyth appropriates this image. He says, What alone can satisfy the soul What alone can satisfy the soul is the vision of God. Not God afar off, but nigh. Not God in nature, or in the law, or in the imagination of our hearts, but God in Christ. Here is true and abiding satisfaction. Infinite truth for the mind, eternal righteousness for the conscience, perfect love for the heart. Philip said, Show us the Father, and it will suffice us. And the answer the Lord gives, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The more we meditate on this possession, the more we rejoice and give thanks, says Forsyth. We cannot but praise. That is the only option. As the spirit of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into this one psalm, So the spirit and soul of the whole psalm is contracted into this one verse, says Forsyth. End quote. The song continues. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. This is should um, remind you of some of the things we talked about last week in the sermon on Psalm 121 about God being the help of the pilgrim. My soul follows close behind you, and your right hand upholds me. David not only engages in public praise, but he also also seeks God on his bed, where he remembers and meditates on him. It is a good thing for us to tap into our memory of what God has done for us. Memory encourages faith and shows us the faithfulness of God in our lives. To remember is a command that we have. We're here today for the very purpose of remembering what God has done for us in Christ. Thus, as Jesus extends to us the element of elements of the Lord's Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We will be doing that momentarily together. The verb meditate used here in verse 6 also appears in Psalm 1. You know the famous passage. But his delight, the man who is righteous, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law 
or on his law, he meditates day and night. Its primary meaning is to moan, growl, or to speak. It's not often the image we think of when we think of meditation. We think silence. Um, um, Was it Rafiki and the Lion King, right? That's the image we often have when we think of meditate. That's not the kind of meditation that David uh, was in. To moan, growl, or speak. And, And it may indicate that David's meditation is active and verbal thus devoting conscious energy to mulling over who God is as he goes through the night watches, the several time periods uh, of the night. In memory and meditation, then, David finds security, even in the perilous hours when an enemy could strike under the cover of darkness at any time. The basis for David's meditation is that God has been his help. Protected under God's wings, David will rejoice. The verb here literally means to shout for joy. When is the last time you shouted for joy at the thought that you are being kept in the mighty hands of God's protective care? Moreover, because of God's protection, David follows close behind him, much as a soldier travels behind the shield that he carries. This thought also suggests devotion and obedience to God. Deuteronomy 10.20 And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. As David stays close to the Lord, he is upheld by God's right hand, the hand of authority and power and safety. Verses 7 and 8 may also give us the content of David's nighttime meditations. He especially thinks of God's help, his protection, and his authority over his life. Thus, God keeps him safe in the warfare of this world. The famous preacher, the ancient preacher Chrysostom, comments on this. He says, why do we forget about wickedness? It is due to our remembrance of good things, due to our remembrance of God himself. If we continually remember God, we cannot remember those things also. For he says, when I remembered you on my bed, I thought on you in the morning dawn. We ought then to have God always in our remembrance, but then especially... When thought is undisturbed, when by means of that remembrance one is able to condemn himself, when he can retain things in memory. For in the daytime, indeed, if we do remember, other cares and troubles entering in drive the thought out again. But in the night, it is possible to remember continually when the soul is calm and at rest, when it is in the heaven and under a serene sky. The things that you say in your hearts, you should grieve over on your beds, he says. For it was indeed right to remember this throughout the day also. But inasmuch as you are always full of cares and distracted amid the things of this life, at least then remember God on your bed. At the morning dawn, meditate on him. Luther, in his lectures on the Psalms, also picks up on this 
and says, uh, and he's talking about the importance of evening meditation as Psalm 63 um, inspires it. He says the evening, uh, this is Martin Luther, quote, the evening's reflection and recall is especially helpful for the morning purity. So he's drawing a connection between our evening habits of meditating on God and what happens in our minds when we wake up in the morning. The evening's reflection and recall is especially helpful for the morning purity, just as, on the contrary, the evening's distraction is a particular hindrance to the morning meditation. Because there are remnants of reflection make the day festive in the morning. Because I'm sorry, because there the remnants of reflection make the day festive in the morning. Therefore, it is most appropriate that when he had said, He's talking about David. I have remembered. He immediately added, I will meditate on you in the morning. For the more diligent the evening remembrance was, the easier is the morning meditation, says Luther. But alas, how much the devil now subverts all of that through all stages. For drunkenness, frivolity, talkativeness, amusements, and other monstrosities are now indulged in, especially in the evening. And for that reason, people pray and celebrate that much worse in the morning and are very badly lacking. Note, however, that he attributes remembrance to the evening and meditation to the morning. And thus, in a striking way, shows us the difference between the two. For because the vexation and the tickling of the flesh are wont to be aroused on the bed for the idle, and especially for those who are drunk, Remembrance is necessary and not a perfunctory recall of God, but one must remain and go to sleep fixed on the meditation of God so that it might somehow last during the sleep. End quote. There's a challenge here, I think, that we can take on uh, in our devotional lives to God. Um, remembering God on our bed is powerful. And I think Psalm 63 is a meditation on this notion of longing for God uh, can encourage us in some practices or to develop or maybe hone practices we already use in our devotional lives to really take advantage of the benefits, the spiritual benefits of meditation in this way. And finally, the victory of God we read of in verses 9 through 11. But those who seek my life, says David, to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. David is in a battle. Enemies seek his life to destroy it. But because of God's help and power, however, they will be destroyed. They will go into the lower parts of the earth to Sheol. The means of their destruction will be that they will fall in battle by the sword. God will slay David's enemies and jackals will eat their corpses. As Pastor Booth likes to say, this is not a precious moment. Like David, we too have our enemies. Paul reminds us, however, that our real foes are not human and thus our weapons must be spiritual. Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, we read of in 2 Corinthians 10. While the devil seeks to destroy us, it is he who will finally go into the lower parts of the earth, even to the lake of fire, where he will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever, Revelation 20.10. Knowing in Luther's phrase that his doom is sure, he is all the more angry and violent towards us in this life. We shall not forget that. Thus it is imperative that like David, we remember God at night and know him as our help, our protection, and our power. Under his wings, we can join David and rejoice or even shout for joy. David concludes that the king shall rejoice in God. The third person singular pronoun here is royal court language. It also means that this psalm applies to the line of Israel's king that ultimately climaxes in the Messiah. Notice that David's joy is not merely in winning the battle. It is in the God who wins the battle for him. The danger in worshiping God for his benefits when we are winners is that we end up worshiping the benefits and not the God who gives them to us. Furthermore, everyone who swears by him shall glory. The New King James Version capitalizes him, the pronoun him, in that verse. But in the Hebrew text, the him pronoun could refer to the king, who, of course, represents God to his people. In either case, to swear by God or the king is to take an oath of loyalty. The result will be glory or boasting because such an allegiance ensures that his victory is our victory. The liars, however, will be proven wrong. Their mouths shall be stopped by God's judgment. Our king is Jesus, God in the flesh, God with us. As he rejoices in God, so do we. His triumph is ours and our commitment to him evokes only the right kind of glory. In this psalm, David's longing for God is is satisfied as he worships, meditates, and then goes out into battle. Think about this sequence. It's a crucial model for us. We too must worship and meditate before we fight. Because we can only fight in and with the power of God. Thus we need to follow close behind him and to be upheld by his right hand. As this becomes our spiritual lifestyle, we too will see God's power and glory. And our hunger for him will be satisfied. The German reformer Conrad Pelikan says that, quote, Because the pious consider nothing more majestic than God, their greatest joy is in God. And the fullest means of praising is to praise his goodness in order to stop up the mouth of those speaking vanities, those who are his enemies. Accordingly, those who learn the nature of pious prayer and enjoy the contemplation of divine works will learn that the pious may not rejoice in anything other than in the grace and the favor of God. End quote. David understood this. In this psalm, there is mutual action. The soul cleaves to God, and God cleaves to the soul. There is a double embrace. You get the image of two people embracing one another. One is hugging uh, the other person, and that person is simply just standing there still. You ever had those awkward moments, right? It's, 
right? That the picture there is sad, right? It's one of disappointment. There's love in one direction, but here we have double embrace. Arms are wrapped around each other. God longs and reaches out, uh, longs and reaches out for David. David longs and reaches out for him. The image is beautiful. The result of this is invigoration, the quickening glow of life through all our being and free, the free and joyous resolve to cleave close to God and to follow Him in love and devotion all our days. Our needs are constant and God's love never fails. When we are weak, His strength makes us strong. When we are weary, His comfort sustains our fainting souls. When we are ready to sink into the waters, his voice gives us courage and his strong arm brings us up to salvation. God ever comes to those who want him. Do you want him? Do you long for God? Desire on our part is met by satisfaction on his part. More and more as we love and serve, we enter into the joy of our Lord. Our heart becomes a prophet to itself and tells of vanquishment of the enemy and the coming glory and the pleasures which are at God's right hand forevermore. Jesus Christ himself is the guarantee, a guarantor of our victory and the only rightful object of our deepest longings today. Through him we worship the Father. Through him we participate in the Spirit. On him we meditate in the night watches and because of him we have the victory. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Psalm 63 offers a vision of the faithful life as hungering and thirsting for God, ultimately feasting on God's presence itself. That is the food. Centuries after David mused on his longing, Jesus similarly advocates a grand passion for God. Matthew 22, 37 and 38, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The example of faith demonstrated in Psalm 63 invites us to measure ourselves not by how well we care for others, our gifts, our responsibilities, but by what goes on in our deepest being. In a world filled with competition for our affections, allegiance, energy, and love, Psalm 63 challenges the faithful to cultivate gusto for God. The faithful develop our hearts, honing our desires until we find with Augustine that our hearts are restless until they, refine, until they find their rest in God. Unfortunately, disorders, disordered desires haunt us. Sometimes we want wrong things. More often, though, we want good things in bad ways. We want some things too much, and we desire other things too little. Such is the nature of our sin. Psalm 63 centers and grounds the imbalanced soul, directing its desire to the proper object and in the proper measure. If there is anything we need more in our society that 
loves the largesse, it is more joy and pleasure in God. Loving God more than life still feels foreign to many of us. Our desire for God has rarely been so full-bodied that it feels like hunger or thirst. Instead, overwhelmed and embarrassed by the grandeur of the the religious passions exhibited by some, we may be tempted to downplay the importance of cultivating zeal for God because we don't like the way it looks in that person. Alternatively, gusto for God that is as natural and spontaneous as our enjoyment of life's other loves may seem unrealistic. We may not know how to begin the Lenten discipline of honing and healing our wounded desires or, quite honestly, of deciding whether we want them healed at all. Whether we genuinely desire to know and enjoy God more, whether we want to desire such a thing, or whether we simply know discontent, restlessness, boredom, or we're at a breaking point, God in Christ takes the small and changes the world with it. God did it in choosing a small nation of Hebrew people to be his own, to be priests to the nations, out of which comes the Messiah, who now reigns in the universe. God did it by sending a vulnerable baby to a foreign to, to forever change the world. God did it in healing a tainted creation through the ignominy of a common crude cross. Like the proverbial mustard seed, God works with what is even if it is nothing more than the smallest of desires, and he changes the world with it. That's our story. Even so, the Holy One works with whatever desire for God we do have and helps us cultivate and grow it until it it too turns into a feast of praise and joy. May it be so for us today. We have the perfect opportunity here at the Lord's table to practice this virtue of longing for the love of God, where we are so vividly reminded of God's loving kindness toward us in the Son, Jesus Messiah. The mystery of his body broken and his blood shed for us while we were, while we were yet sinners is at the core of our worship and our identity. May we eat and drink together with longing hearts and lips of thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. O giver of all good, streams upon streams of your love overflow our path. You have made us out of nothing, have called us from a far country, have translated us from spiritual ignorance to knowledge, from darkness to light, from death to life, from misery to peace, from folly to wisdom, from error to truth, from sin to victory. Thanks be to God for our high and holy calling. We bless thee for your ministering angels, for the promises of your word, for the ordinances of your church, for the teaching of your spirit, for the holy sacraments, for the communion of saints, and for Christian fellowship. Give us longing hearts that yearn for your steadfast love, and may we delight in the sweetness of your Sabbath. Bless now our resting and feasting. Eternal glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now receive this benediction from Second Peter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.